Welcome to Your Brain On, a podcast about the neuroscience of everything. A conversation about sugar in the brain is, in many ways, a conversation about centuries of global economics. Think about it this way. There are two powers at play. On the one side, we have the scientists, researchers, and doctors who are doing good, real, important work to enhance our understanding of our bodies. This side, unfortunately, also includes many charlatans sharing a lot of misinformation through social media, yet they have positioned themselves as voices of authority. On the other side, there's the food industry. Manufacturing sugar makes tens of billions of dollars each year, and the confectionery business, chocolate, candies, sweet treats, has, by some measures, already pushed it past the $1 trillion mark. Between these two superpowers, there's you. Caught in the crossfire, hundreds of pieces of conflicting information, thousands of do's and don'ts. It all blurs into a noise that can make healthy decision-making almost feel impossible. The very definition of sugar becomes foggy, which is great for the trillion-dollar confectionery industry. What is sugar? Is sugar a carbohydrate? Is glucose a sugar? How much sugar can I have? Is chocolate okay in moderation? Is dark chocolate better for me? It better be. How much fruit is too much? Are fruit juices healthy? Are zero sugar sodas bad for me? What does added sugar mean? It's just a lot. Now, the best healthcare advice for you, of course, will come from nutritionally trained experts and healthcare providers, such as registered dietitians, nutritionists, and trained scientists. But having a clear view of the general facts, including how sugar affects the brain, will help clear the fog of information overload and help you navigate the complexities of health and nutrition. This is Your Brain on Sugar. If you do a Google image search of sugar, you'll have to scroll past a couple hundred photos of the white stuff before you see any kind of scientific diagram, unfortunately. Even then, the molecular model that shows up represents just one kind of sugar, sucrose. Sucrose is a disaccharide, which when extracted from sugarcane, shipped off to factories and refined into crystals, becomes the white granules most of us envision when we think of sugar. You might recall from fifth grade science that dioxide, as in carbon dioxide, means two oxygen atoms. The di means two. Same with disaccharide. It's made up of two monosaccharides, glucose and fructose, two of the simplest forms of sugar. That molecular diagram of sucrose depicts glucose and fructose looking like they're holding hands. So cute. The molecular formula for sucrose is C12H22O11. That's 12 carbon atoms, 22 hydrogens, 11 oxygen molecules. Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. Carbohydrate. Yes, sugar is a carbohydrate, or carbs as we call them now. Apologies to oxygen and hydrogen. When you eat or drink something that contains sugar, the receptor cells in the taste buds on your tongue send signals to your brain. And there is a particular part of the brain called the gustatory cortex, which is the area that processes the sensation of taste. And it creates the perception that you're consuming something sweet. In today's world, it can feel like sugar carries entirely negative health connotations, but it's not sugar itself that's harmful. It's how pervasive it's become and the refined nutrient deficient form in which it's so often consumed, particularly in the Western diet. So what is added sugar? 
Added sugars refer to sugars that are added in food preparation or manufacturing, such as glucose, fructose, sucrose, a sugar molecule made from glucose and fructose combined, and hydrogenated starch hydrosylates or high fructose corn syrup. The World Health Organization or WHO and the Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition use the term quote-unquote free sugars, which also includes all sugars that are naturally present in honey, fruit juices, and syrups. This is generally not considered to include sugars found within the cellular structure of foods like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, dairy products, or nuts. Estimated total sugar intake between 1977 to 1998 increased from 235 to 318 kilocalories per day. Added sugars and sweeteners reached a peak of over 69 kilograms. These changes in diet coincided with a dramatic rise in obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular diseases. Those are incredible numbers. At the turn of the century, we began to see a subtle shift in our relationship with sugar. There was a 14% drop in our consumption of added sugars and sweeteners from 1999 to 2014. This trend was particularly notable among younger adults, people between the ages of 19 to 50. Their daily intake of sugar decreased from an average of 96 grams to 72 grams, including a significant reduction in sugar-sweetened beverages from nearly half to over a third of their daily sugar intake. So that's good news. It is. This pattern wasn't unique to the United States alone. In Australia and New Zealand between 1995 to 2011, the share of dietary energy from free sugars went down from 12.5% to 10.9%, with the most substantial drop seen in children and young adults. Interestingly, this decline in sugar consumption was was accompanied by only a minimal increase in dietary fats, about 1%. Now, despite these decreases, global sugar consumption remains alarmingly high, well above the recommended 5 to 10% of daily energy intake, with sugar-sweetened beverages continuing to be the main source of daily added sugars in most Western countries. The growing body of evidence linking free or added sugar to diseases like obesity and heart disease has led to the introduction of sugar guidelines by major health organizations like WHO, the American Heart Association, and the UK National Health Service. A 2014 systematic review emphasizing sugar's significant impact on dental caries played a crucial role in shaping the WHO's guidelines for recommended daily sugar intake. Both the WHO and AHA suggest added sugars should constitute no more than 10% of total calories, or about 12 teaspoons for an average adult. But they note that limiting added sugars to just 5% of total calories per day could further enhance health outcomes. Following suit, the NHS guidelines recommend that free sugars not exceed 5% of daily caloric intake, about 30 grams per day. Now, it's important to remember that sugar itself is absolutely crucial for our physiology. Glucose, a derivative of carbohydrates, is the most efficient source of energy, not just for humans, but for every organism on our planet. Your brain needs a constant supply of glucose to function throughout the day. Glucose is so important for cognitive function that we have an elaborate system of glucose transporters, affectionately abbreviated as glutes in the world of science, which quickly pass glucose 
glucose through the blood-brain barrier. That's the protective layer lining our cerebral blood vessels, which gatekeeps the molecules that can pass between our blood and our brain. It's generally believed that the neuroscientific origin of what we might call a sweet tooth today began with our distant ancestors who, while foraging, evolved to favor glucose-rich foods, much like how we evolved distaste for bitter sensations, which signaled that something might be toxic for us. Fruits taste best when they're ripe, and that also happens to be when fruits are most rich in sugar. But your brain only needs a finite amount of glucose to work. Many modern foods, unfortunately, especially fast food and comfort foods contain too many refined carbohydrates and they are lacking in fiber, which slows digestion and regulates the release of glucose into your blood. But is it the excess sugar that is associated with chronic diseases or the very nature of the food that we're surrounded with? To speak more about carbohydrates and how they affect your health, we're excited to welcome Dr. Alan Flanagan to the podcast. Alan's insights span from the diets of our ancient ancestors to the misinformation saturated nutrition landscape of today. Nowadays, as you know very well, when the word carbohydrate comes, it's vilified. People are scared mm -hmm. of it. A lot of people actually completely negate it as a crucial aspect of our dietary pattern. What actually happened? I know this is a very broad question, but I know you're very interested and aware of the history. Carbohydrates as a, as a food group encompassing non-starchy vegetables, fruits, complex carbohydrates that would be perhaps underground tubers like potatoes or legumes or grains that are cultivated and grown have been a part of human diets for longer than people might have in their mind. So because there's been this narrative of the ancestral human diet, quote unquote, usually if you're coming across that term in the popular nutrition space or the social media space, almost 99% they're completely bastardizing what the actual ancestral human diet is hypothesized and available evidence supports it to have been. There is this idea that, well, we only recently introduced some of these carbohydrate foods into the diet, like grains, and therefore we're not evolutionarily adapted to them. There's really no evidence to necessarily support that. Grain cultivation probably goes back a lot longer than we had initially anticipated. Let's think about what are the dietary patterns of unacculturated populations. And there, are, there are very few populations in the world that are still living in a very kind of uncontacted or unacculturated subsistence traditional lifestyle, i.e. they are largely still hunters and gatherers. And carbohydrates are a crucial source of nutrition in those populations and can range, to be fair, from much lower overall amounts in populations that might live closer to the poles. So a good heuristic for listeners would be typically in ancestral diets and with estimates and even reflected in kind of unacculturated populations today. The closer you get to the equator, the more plants there are in the diet and the further away you get the kind of less plant sourced foods, carbohydrate contribution in the diet. In terms of contemporary healthy dietary patterns, whether we're looking at the Mediterranean diet, and again, there's this kind of operational definition issues with what that actually means, because the diet in the south of Spain is not the same as the diet in Lebanon. But nevertheless, plant foods, carbohydrate foods will form a substantial part of the dietary pattern, as they would in the traditional Japanese diet, as they would in any of the Blue Zones diets. And again, there, there's some issues with the Blue Zones research, quote unquote. It's more ecological observations than it is anything more than that. 
to round this out, the idea that they're somehow not a part of our human diet is pretty readily falsifiable. So then we get to the question, well, why all the kind of hullabaloo in the, in the last maybe two to three decades? Often hyperbole, sensationalism, or just flat out quackery does start with a grain of truth. I guess now I'm realizing the use of the word grain is kind of a pun, but <laughs> <laughs> that grain of truth is that we have had a substantial shift in the composition of the carbohydrate content of diets and a shift away from, for example, more whole grain to more refined grain, a shift away from the sugar content of diet primarily being derived from fruits, dairy produce in, in populations that consume dairy, you know, milk intrinsic sugars. We've had this big shift away from those types of sugars to added sugars or non-milk extrinsic sugars, which is obviously a, an aspect of our conversation today. That shift has typically been a big focus that people have said, well, look, we used to eat these kind of carbohydrates and now we eat these kind of carbohydrates. It also comes along with this kind of anti-dietary fat narrative where people have suggested that, well, because we were recommended low-fat dietary patterns, that's also fairly easily falsifiable by reference to the data that we have, we cannot just say that the quality and composition of the carbohydrate in our diet has changed, because the quality and composition of our dietary fats have changed as well. But the point is that whatever shift that has occurred has not occurred independent of shifts in the total food supply, in the foods that are providing these forms as well. Whenever we're discussing nutrition, we always have to be holding two potential ways that we think about the exposure in mind. One is the nutrients specifically, so in this case, added sugars, or then the foods that contribute that, and is the sugar that we might derive from honey or a sugary fruit like a mango, should we be comparing that to a can of Coke for for example. And, and and that's where there is nuance that we always need to be kind of holding in tension, the difference between foods and nutrients and acknowledging that foods provide nutrients. That's beautifully stated. I mean, the fact that they're bringing in this ancestral component, there's also a naturalistic fallacy, right? I mean, mm -hmm. who says that what was natural 1,000 years, 200,000 years ago is even relevant to today? One thing that you said was quality kind of changed over time. And we hear this a lot, that mm -hmm. quality has changed, but we don't speak about it specifically. In your mind, how do you see that? There's various ways that we can quantify diet quality. Usually, certainly in nutritional epidemiology, that will be by reference to a diet pattern score. So you would positively score, for example, fruits and vegetables, and then you would have increasing scores across levels of intake. So you'd be scored very high for a high level of fruits and vegetables. And, and you can kind of wrap that up into a single score that represents the overall quality of the diet. So that's a useful metric. And then the other is our actual national dietary guidelines, which you guys are in the States, I'm in the UK, even if we were to pull in someone from Denmark into this conversation, or France or Australia, the point is that most of our national level dietary recommendations are pretty consistent. They do differ in how they present the information and in some subtleties within the information being communicated. But at their core, they are recommending the overall body of knowledge that we have from nutrition science in simple terms. So for example, lower sodium consumption, lower added sugars, more complex and whole grain carbohydrate consumption, high fruit and vegetable intake, low saturated fat, greater intake of unsaturated fats. So they're communicated in different ways. And, and, and a good example of how we can kind of tease out this question in relation to diet quality is actually by reference to research that's, that scores diet patterns according to national guidelines. I mentioned 
mentioned that the argument that people will make that, well, we were recommended to lower our fat intake and consume less animal fat, and that's why people went and consumed more sugar. Well, for that to be true, it has to be that people actually started following our dietary guidelines. And actually, we've pretty good data now that across any country you look at, overall adherence to the guidelines has been pretty low since inception. No one really started following the guidelines. So then we've got to kind of like look at the actual composition of diets and within that you you often see how far we are off certain of these nutrition recommendations so as a uk example we have this kind of slogan for five a day and it's five servings of fruits and vegetables in gram amounts that would be around 400 grams of combined fruits and vegetables a day average uk intake across the population and and in the adult population is about 240 to 60, if I remember from the last national nutrition survey data. So that's kind of how far off. And bear in mind that five a day is a compromise because it was intended to be pragmatic public health advice. The actual evidence would put the, the maximal benefit more up at around eight to 10 servings of fruits and vegetables a day combined. So you're already compromising to make something accessible to people in the population and we're still falling short of that across the population. The reasons for that we get into the complexity of the food environment, the role of various socio-economic, environmental, demographic and other factors that all mix into why at a population level we are unable to achieve some basic metrics of diet quality and ultimately we know that as populations we still are above the recommendation for saturated fat, still consuming higher than, re- than ideal sodium intakes, low fruit and vegetable on average, higher intake of of refined grains over complex carbohydrate. This shift, we can trace it really back to the Second World War. I don't know that we need to go right down historical (laughs) nutrition science memory lane, but that's really where you started to get, for, for obviously beneficial reasons initially in terms of how do you industrially create foods that are not going to go off when you're shipping them to GIs on Iwo Jima or in Normandy to make a giant leap from that period that the post-war industrialization of the the food supply is something that people will retrospectively fit their narratives on it but ultimately I just don't think anyone really saw these kind of shifts coming and having the impact that they did on health there was a signal in the noise for saturated fat in the 1950s and 60s there was a little signal in the noise for sugar but it wasn't actually as strong as it was for dietary fat composition it's a much bigger player now we can kind of speculate on the historical determinants all like the reality is particularly from the mid 70s onwards we saw a seismic shift in our food supply in our food environment and more than anything what we really saw was a seismic shift in total energy availability and the ubiquity of energy intake allowing people to consume excess calories chronically over time Alan's points about the history of carbohydrates in our culture are fascinating. Our conversation with Alan continues in a little while, but first let's hop into the time machine and see how sugar ended up sneaking into everything we eat. The modern history of sugar starts around 8000 BCE in New Guinea, an island country in the southwestern Pacific. This is likely the first place where sugarcane was grown and cultivated for human consumption. Over the next 8000 years, it would largely be chewed raw until around maybe 350 CE 
in India, it was crystallized for the first time. This technique spread east to China and west to Persia and the early Islamic world. By the 10th century CE, elaborate sweets were a significant part of Persian and Arab cuisine. As Arab rule spread to places like the island of Sicily around 900 CE, so did sugar production, which is also how it ended up getting exported to Europe, where it was known as the sweet salt. Even thousands of years into its story, sugar was still treated as a rare and exotic spice. And in medieval Europe, its presence on the tables of lavish feasts was a show of status. Royal events were sometimes decorated with extravagant sugar sculptures. Spanish and Portuguese exploration in the 15th century led to Madeira, an archipelago off the northwest coast of Africa, becoming the center of the sugar trade in the 1400s and 1500s. And then when Spain landed in the Americas, sugar's history tragically became entangled with the horrors of transatlantic slave trade. Sugar plantations in the Caribbean and Americas were built on the backs of enslaved Africans, supplying cities like London, Paris, and Philadelphia. With these growing cities came to the rise of the printed press. People across the world became more and more aware of the atrocities of the slave trade and the rebellions like the Demerara Rebellion of 1823. In the ensuing decades, public opposition against slavery grew, eventually leading to abolition and emancipation. Back in Europe, German chemist Andreas Margraf discovered a way to extract sugar from beets, and a student, Franz Ackart, invented a way to make beet sugar production economically viable. Cane sugar had competition, and with the Industrial Revolution in full swing, mechanization drove the price of sugar down and its overabundance up. As we headed into the 20th century, sugar was the perfect ingredient for food corporations. It was cheap, it was plentiful, it was multi-purpose, had a long shelf life, and perhaps most importantly, it was kind of addictive. But health concerns over sugar aren't a new phenomenon. Its negative effects were beginning to be widely discussed as early as the mid-1800s. But industries which deemed sugar as quote-unquote white gold fought back. Sugar corporations did everything they could to convince the public that sugar was healthy. Perhaps the most infamous campaign of this ilk came during World War II, when Coca-Cola set up bottling plants to supply millions of bottles of Coke to U.S. military service personnel, even on the front lines, to boost morale. The sugar-loaded soda didn't just get more well-known, it became synonymous with America. A few decades later, the sugar industry took aim at fat, framing fats and not sugars as the cause of rising obesity and heart disease. Around the same time, tariffs drove up the price of imported sugar, but a newly discovered alternative derived from corn had appeared, high fructose corn syrup. U.S. subsidies on corn keep it cheap, and so here we are in the 21st century where high fructose corn syrup has found its way into nearly every mass-produced food on the supermarket shelves. Everything from soft drinks, candy, bread, and canned soups and fruits, processed cereals, juices, and sauces, it's everywhere and it can feel impossible to avoid. But with a little bit of effort, we can make carbohydrates a healthier, more balanced part of our diets and give its 10,000 year history a happier ending. One of the trickiest issues with carbohydrates is how they often get lumped into one big category. An apple and an apple pie are commonly defined as just carbohydrates or carbs. We asked Alan about the importance of differentiating between different kinds of carbs. 
one of the basic distinctions that we can make between carbohydrate foods generally would be in relation to the rapidity with which they are broken down and absorbed and consequently present to the bloodstream as glucose. The vehement anti-carbohydrate camp, and they are... (laughs) numerous and loud, will say something along the lines of, well, all carbohydrate ultimately presents into the bloodstream as as glucose, or in some cases fructose. So all carbohydrates are sugars. Like that, again, is one of those things that's technically true. When it gets to the bloodstream, it is typically in the form of glucose. The idea that that unifies and means that oats are the same as Pop-Tarts is absurd. And when it comes to the kind of way that we might parse thinking about food sources of glucose or fructose, fruits, we've got, again, lactose, we've got these varying types of, of sugars, carbohydrates in the diet, it would relate, generally speaking, to the food matrix that it comes in. And the relevance of that is how that's influencing postprandial glucose absorption into the bloodstream. And there's various metrics that have been developed to try and kind of classify foods. The glycemic index is one that's kind of well known. The problem with that is it doesn't really take into account the fact that you typically eat a a mixed meal. So it's a reference against pure glucose, but it will assume that a carrot, for example, has a certain glycemic index, but you're hardly going to sit down and just eat a bag of carrots on its own. Another way of evolving that was the glycemic load, which takes into account the amount of carbohydrate eaten, not just the actual potential hypothetical rise in blood glucose from from a given amount of that compared to glucose. Now, these are all, again, all models are wrong. Some models are useful. Like the glycemic load is probably more instructive. But again, your average person is not walking around being like, ooh, what's the glycemic load of this, right? So the basic heuristics that I would hope people will come away from is I I think we could hopefully agree that non-starchy vegetables are not a cause for any sort of concern and are such a rich source of micronutrition and, and other bioactive food components that are particularly important for the brain as as we currently think in terms of polyphenols and and flavonoids so so non-starchy vegetables good fruit good so there's there's been such a vilification of fruit again particularly in the low carbohydrate circles because their argument very much focuses on fructose and they'll say well it's uniquely metabolized and it's metabolized different to glucose and that means you see this upregulation in triglycerides VLDL synthesis in the liver and stuff. And it's like, okay, a banana, an orange, a mango is not drinking 100 grams of pure fructose and having your postprandial <laughs> measures taken in a, in a lab. And so they take research that's mechanistic in humans that was using pretty enormous doses of isolated fructose. If you eat a banana, it's not isolated monosaccharide fructose. It's, it's a disaccharide. So the fructose is still broken down. And from a dietary perspective, you would need to consume enormous <laughs> amounts of fruit to get even close to a level of that dose of fructose in the circulation that would be any cause for concern. In terms of where we recommend now, like as in, and I say we, I mean like all of our respective national guidelines, there's really no cause for concern for fruit. And again, to tie it back to the brain, I mean, the idea that people would exclude polyphenol rich, dark pigmented fruits and berries is nutritional nonsense. Like there's no valid reason for you to do that. And that leads us then to kind of 
where some more of the scaremongering lies, which is kind of grains and legumes. Typically here, what we're looking at in terms of additional benefit isn't just the complexity of the carbohydrates as far as how long it takes them to actually be broken down and absorbed. That's also related to the non-digestible component of the plant matter, what we broadly call fiber. Fiber is an umbrella term. And so for foods like oats, barley, other grains, these are fiber-rich, incredibly beneficial for blood glucose regulation, incredibly beneficial for just a range of health outcomes. And then legumes would also kind of, they're obviously not necessarily going to fit under the whole grains umbrella, but lentils, chickpeas, beans of different sorts, all components of healthy dietary patterns. So the idea that someone would be avoiding these foods, conflating them with sugar-sweetened beverages, donuts, and candy is just nonsensical and illogical from any sort of evidential perspective in terms of what we know about the the health effects of whole grain, complex carbohydrates, fruits, and non-starchy vegetables. I'm glad you said that because there's this ridiculous notion going on saying that something as healthy as, say, grapes or Mm -hmm. bananas or oranges are quote-unquote sugar and exposing our kids before they go to school with some fruit can actually affect their attention and it it can actually lower their concentration during class or school. And I don't know where they got it from, but I'm really glad that you brought up the idea of mechanistic studies. So there are studies for the audience. There are studies where they look at high concentrations of a substance and its effect on that particular animal or the particular group of cells. That doesn't translate to what is actually going on in a human body. And extrapolating from a mechanistic study and applying it to population is false in so many ways. And unfortunately, and I think you agree with this, there's a lot of that going on, isn't it? Especially in social media. Yeah, and so research is always taken out of its context on social media. With the sugar stuff, it's it almost constantly taken out of context. So we have that example of what are postprandial studies in, in nutrition, generally quite tightly controlled, generally you're giving someone often a liquid feed with a certain specific amount, and again, usually quite a high amount, of a type of sugar. And you're looking at you know, postprandial responses in, for example, triglycerides is a, a big interest in, in terms of fructose research. We also see the same kind of misrepresentation of observational ecological data where it's like, well, look at this population, don't consume X or this population do consume Y. And typically they're not even, as it pertains to, to sugar, a lot of those observations are deliberately ignoring the fact that a lot of the foods that we've just mentioned from a beneficial perspective perspective are part of a traditional dietary pattern, including some kind of pure sugar forms like honey, for example, that a population may not consume some of the predominant sugar forms in a typical Western diet is not in and of itself an argument against all carbohydrate foods. Probably where most of the mechanistic or or at least experimental research on sugars themselves gets misrepresented is is probably in relation to fructose. I think when we put the evidence in its proper context, there's no evidence-based reason why someone would fear fruit. The idea that they would not give it to their kids in the morning because of concerns over concentration is pretty wild, given the benefits of fruits. I'll tell you, there was a really nice study by a UK group that do a lot of work on kind of polyphenols and brain and cognition. 
at the University of Reading. And they did a study where they were looking at acute effects of flavonoid rich. They made as an intervention the basically a kind of concentrated blueberry powder, which obviously contained sugar, but it also contained about 500 milligrams of anthocyanins, a specific subclass of of flavonoids. This was in seven to 10 year old children. And you saw these acute effects over six hours. The kind of intervention was designed to mimic a school day with cognitive tests performed over subsequent hours. And these are kind of delicate effect sizes, but nevertheless, the kind of just just to that point that someone would deliberately not give their kids blueberries before school for fear of the sugar content, it, it just, it, it does not make sense evidentially at all. Now, a lot of those ecological studies in children from a behavioral standpoint have identified or at least correlated in a crude sense, adverse behavioral manifestations in in the classroom to added sugars like high sugar sweetened beverage intake or energy drinks. That's something that we could potentially go with as far as, okay, there does seem to be potentially an effect on some aspects of behavior in children if they've just had a, a 50 gram 500 milliliter monster full sugar energy drink. There's also the caffeine content and all sorts of other stuff going on. But but even at that, where that to give us some plausible hypothesis to work with on the effects of sugar on behavioral aspects in children, that again, that's completely different to extrapolating the potential relevance of those findings to foods like whole fruit. There's this really kind of lazy over-extrapolation of various strands of research in the kind of carbohydrate and sugar domain, particularly as it pertains to kind of behavioral elements in children and also as it pertains to kind of cognition and otherwise, that is just really conflating foods that aren't comparable as far as their overall quality and, and place in the diet. My undergraduate degree was in history, so I I can't help but like always try and come at aspects of nutrition science from like the historical standpoint. I'm like, what happened in this 70 years ago? One of the most fascinating and, and kind of rewarding rabbit holes that I ever went down was tracing back the kind of history of this carbohydrate versus fat debate, so to speak, because again, the, the kind of hardcore low to no carb community, carnivore diet, ketogenic diet, kind of various iterations of low to almost no carbohydrate. And there's a big umbrella term for that community. So I'll just lump them all in together. They have a very particular narrative about carbohydrates and health. And it goes something like this. In the 1950s and 60s, there was this scientist called Ansel Keys, and him and his cronies were paid off by big sugar to lie to the US government who then gave us these government guidelines and now we're all sick because we tried to eat less fat and we started eating more sugar and that's not even me straw manning their position that is basically the narrative that can be distilled they point to senate hearings before dietary guidelines for americans were introduced in 1977 they argue that data on sugar that show that sugar was way more deleterious for health than than saturated fat and animal fat was available and it was suppressed and it's nonsense if we're just confining ourselves to the evidence the evidence in relation to most of this was focused on cardiovascular disease at the time, coronary heart disease, the the leading cause of mortality and and had surged in industrialized Western countries in the the post-war period once rationing ended and rationing never came in in America, so heart disease actually never dropped. European countries during the Second World War, you can see heart disease kind of drops off the map. And then from 1945 onwards, it just shoots back up because everyone's got access to 
bacon and butter again. The data on the effects of dietary fats from that period was so well conducted and so robust that the equations for how dietary fat impacts your blood cholesterol levels still stand to this day. They've never been falsified. They've been subject to some modifications, like any good hypothesis over time that's subject to repeated testing. The data on sugar, and if we're confining ourselves just to experimental research that was conducted at the time, tightly controlled experiments at the time, they didn't produce anywhere near as persuasive a body of evidence as what was available to to make recommendations to lower saturated fat in the diet from a population health perspective. There's experimental studies that tested up to 40% of people's energy from sugar and did not find any particularly adverse effects on a, on a, on a range of, of outcomes. In some cases, there were some markers that today we would accept were are relevant, like platelet adhesion at 40% of your energy from sugar, like no one is consuming that. Here's the real kind of fundamental distinction between the evidence from the controlled studies on sugar versus fat, is that the effect of fats on, on blood cholesterol levels certainly was observable independent of changes in body weight and independent of energy excess, i.e. even if you were eating enough energy just to maintain your body weight, you still saw these effects. With sugar, absent an excess of energy, you did not see these deleterious effects on big upregulations in VLDL cholesterol, VLDL triglyceride synthesis, the liver itself kind of being overburdened with this new triglyceride synthesis. And, and so very much, and, and, and what was even more interesting is when sugar was isolated as very high in the diet, but in the context of a low total fat and low saturated fat, you basically didn't see any adverse effects at, at a constant level of energy. When you gave an interaction of high saturated fat and high sugar, you saw the sugar kind of component and the saturated fat component interacting to to have pretty profoundly negative impacts on, on people's cholesterol levels and some other risk factors as well. The reality is there was never any conspiracy against sugar. There just wasn't really that much to show. The evidence at that time was certainly not persuasive enough to outweigh the kind of persuasiveness of the evidence for, for dietary fat composition. And even if we accept that as the kind of evidential reality, the introduction of dietary guidelines in the States in 77 and in the UK then was the second country to follow with national recommended guidelines in 1983. They still recommended lowering sugar in the diet. They still recommended eating more vegetables and whole grains. So so even if we assume that that the data on sugar was was somehow ignored, it didn't really it still our, our guidelines still recommended reductions in added sugars. But the veracity of the evidence was very much more in favor of dietary fat modification for, for cardiovascular disease reduction. And obviously now the sources of sugar in the diet have changed. The total content of sugar in the diet is a very interesting one because that hasn't really changed. So as an example, during the Industrial Revolution, the average sugar content in a British worker's diet was 15% of their total daily energy. That was primarily consumed in the form of added table sucrose, added table sugar in tea. And the average worker, factory worker, they did some surveys, could consume up to essentially three pounds of sugar a week dissolved in tea. Enormous quantities of sugar, but they were, but they were obviously engaged in such very manual labor. They also didn't have 
a wider diet that was nutritionally adequate. You fast forward to now, the average sugar content in the British diet is around 12 to 13% of total energy. But people aren't putting it necessarily in their tea anymore. They're consuming it from sugar-sweetened beverages and other food sources. Sugar, especially when consumed in the form of sweetened beverages and hyperpalatable foods, activates the brain's reward system in a way that can lead to overeating. This system involves a complex network of hormones and neurotransmitters including leptin, ghrelin, and dopamine, which regulate hunger, fullness, and the pleasure associated with eating. Studies have shown that sugar can disrupt the balance of these chemicals, leading to changes in your appetite and your eating behavior. Consuming high amounts of fructose, for example, can alter your insulin, leptin, and ghrelin levels in a way that tricks the body into feeling less full than it is, which can make you want to eat more. The way sugar consumption activates the brain's reward pathways has similarities with the effect of addictive drugs, leading some researchers to investigate how sugar might cause addictive-like behavior, including compulsive eating and withdrawal symptoms. The impact of sugar on these neural pathways may vary throughout your life. Prenatal stress, for example, and excessive sugar consumption during adolescence lessons can lead to long-lasting changes in the brain's stress response and reward systems, increasing the likelihood of overeating and weight gain later on in life. This is why understanding and managing sugar intake from a young age is so important. Consuming sugar can temporarily reduce stress hormone levels. This is one reason why people might crave sugary foods in stressful situations. However, chronic stress and long-term sugar consumption can synergistically exacerbate health problems like depression, anxiety, obesity, and metabolic disorders. This interplay between sugar, stress, and brain function highlights the need for a more nuanced understanding of how dietary habits influence our mental and physical health. A question we get asked a lot about sugar is, is it really as addictive as cocaine? This comparison between sugar consumption and drug addiction can be useful for highlighting the potential dangers of excessive sugar intake, but it's also a reductive analogy that fails to capture the full spectrum of factors influencing human dietary behavior. A more nuanced approach recognizes the importance of environmental, social, and psychological factors which shape our food choices as well as the biological mechanisms that regulate our eating. Acknowledging this complexity is crucial in forming effective strategies for addressing eating disorders and for understanding that sugar shouldn't be demonized. I think that is so important. In recent decades, sugar has been cast as the villain in the world of public health, dethroning former culprits like fat and maybe salt. Since the start of the 2000s, sugar has been deemed as empty calories that solely contribute to serious health issues like diabetes, brain diseases, and cancers. The comparisons to cocaine or other drugs and vilifying claims like, you know, when people say sugar cooks you from the inside out due to inflammation, this has led to widespread panic and it has caused millions of people to completely swear off any types of carbohydrates including fruits which are so healthy and then they turn to quote-unquote healthy alternatives like say for example coconut sugar or date sugar or honey maple syrup etc and they're often promoted by social media influencers many of these conversations focus solely on sugar's impact without addressing the entirety of one's dietary pattern and fail to consider the different types 
types of sugar. In controlled studies where sugar intake is the only variable, significant changes in inflammation are rare. Replace healthier sources of sugar like fruits with refined alternatives like jam, jellies, and pastries, however, and you will likely see inflammatory markers. Sugar alone isn't the villain. The dangers are in excessive consumption, especially when paired with other unhealthy habits. So before you dismiss sugar as the root of all dietary evil or hail it as totally harmless, remember to address your broader dietary patterns. That's the most important thing. Opting for carbohydrates found in nutrient-rich whole foods like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes is a smarter choice. It's the combination of our dietary choices that shape our health, not just the sugar in your morning coffee. I think for the brain, from a dietary perspective and long-term risk of neurodegenerative diseases, that complexity is more manifest, I think, in that specific area of nutrition research than any other. And I, I say that for a number of reasons. One, there's this lag in terms of the underlying processes being far in advance from a temporal perspective than the actual onset of, of disease. It also, so we've got this big long latency period and even for other conditions like metabolic disease, like diabetes or, or fatty liver, like you, you can see even in an eight week intervention, quite profound changes in your, in, your, in your main outcome of interest from a nutrition intervention. You cannot do that with the brain. And so we, we, have a, we have a big gap that I think by the nature of the disease, you see this big exponential increase in Alzheimer's and dementia prevalence from like the seventh decade of life, it, which even differs to cardiovascular disease. You might see from, say, the, the kind of fifth or sixth decade of life, although that's later now because we're, we're better at identifying and, and, and kind of managing and treating it. But more than any condition, it's occurring at a much later life stage. And this means that evidentially we're largely confined to prospective cohort studies coupled with acute studies on the roles of, of various kind of nutritional factors on, on the brain and on cognition. And then in between, you've got these one to two year RCTs that are probably telling us nothing unless they're in people with mild cognitive impairment already. Even at that, there's just these kind of gaps in that evidence that I, I'm not convinced methodologically we're ever going to really be able to solve. So we're left with kind of trying to piece pictures together with, with the complexity of the brain. What I find fascinating from a dietary perspective is once you really start digging into to a lot of the kind of evidence, there's this truism that actually is true, which is that what's good for the heart is good for the head. And, and that's an emerging theme in nutrition research, I think. And I don't know that we'll ever come up with a kind of a HMG-CoA reductase equivalent for the brain, so to speak like are, are you saying that those people that are selling those pills they don't work <laughs> no i'm saying exactly that yeah and yet there are mechanistic overlaps between so even if we might not be able to develop a, a statin for the brain fascinatingly statin use itself is associated with on average about a 20 percent lower dementia risk there are mechanisms of cholesterol metabolism in the brain that are similar to what we might expect in terms of the impacts of dietary fats on cardiovascular health in, in terms of circulating lipoproteins provide a plausible reason why diets high in saturated fat might adversely influence the brain. It's to do with amyloid precursor protein and the, and the kind of metabolism of beta amyloid plaque. There are some plausible overlaps that are there 
that exist between what we kind of know about diet, what's good for kind of cardiovascular health and, and what's potentially good for the brain. But we are, as far as the brain and neurodegenerative disease goes, we are never, I don't think, A, going to have the, the kind of evidence, even for cardiovascular disease, like we've got some good large nutrition trials using total dietary patterns with some hard cardiovascular endpoints. I don't think we're ever going to have a large nutrition RCT with neurodegenerative endpoints. Again, for, for the practical limitations of trying to study this particular exposure outcome relationship. In terms of what we do know about this kind of overlap between aspects of and Aisha, you, you said at the very start, you know, we're starting to realize that the brain and central nervous system, there's this kind of similarity with some of these intermediate factors like cholesterol metabolism, vascular dysfunction and insulin resistance, metabolic waste clearance from the brain. As far as whatever we know about the impacts of dietary factors might be on the vascular system from a cardiovascular health perspective, there is at least some research that would suggest some degree of overlap. But because of the nature of the brain, I don't think we're ever going to be able to distill it in the way that we have. For, and maybe we will in time, but it just strikes me that this is where the system differences between the central nervous system and the kind of peripheral vascular system kind of differ in meaningful ways that like, I don't know that we'll ever develop a kind of a statin or a kind of PCSK9 inhibitor, a drug that goes in and does a very specific thing that has profound impacts on one specific risk factor and lowers risk of, of that outcome. So as far as diet goes, yeah, we'll, we'll be left putting together pieces of a puzzle knowing that the puzzle will always be incomplete. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I want to shed some light on these devices that there are so many people who wear continuous glucose monitors. I've heard you speak about it in the past, but I think mm. I would love for you to kind of shed on that. How useful is that? Is it useful at all? There are people that are basing their entire programs and, and mm -hmm. business around those little spikes on mm -hmm. that they you you see from moment to moment yeah it's kind of worrying i mean i've i've used continuous glucose monitors in in research and in in the same study used the more established kind of plasma glucose measures and personally i think cgms are in otherwise healthy individuals are largely noise so for listeners like continuous glucose monitors they actually have long utility both in a in a research context and but specifically in in diabetes management because they are a device that you can wear usually inserted into subcutaneous adipose tissues so kind of lower abdominal region or upper arm and they provide continuous readings either every five minutes or every 15 minutes and they measure interstitial glucose which is important i've seen this conflation and people have said well they talk about it as if it's your your blood your plasma glue your blood glucose response so it's it's, it's not. It's a different measure. So glucose circulates systemically and interstitial fluid is the, is, is the fluid between our blood vessels and, and cells. So it's a medium through which nutrients, including glucose, basically are, are kind of shuttled to cells. And so levels of glucose in interstitial fluid are influenced by the rate at which glucose diffuses from plasma into interstitial fluid. And so that's, that's what CGMs are, are measuring. And this is important because there is evidence that we have now of, of discordance between the values that you would obtain from plasma glucose measures, which is our gold standard, and interstitial glucose measures measured by CGMs. And so this suggests at least some degree of, of discordance for various reasons. And there's even evidence now of discordance between two 
CGM devices. So there's a couple of studies that have used two different devices in the same individual. Some have suggested good agreement between the two devices, and then some have shown in the same person, in response to the same meal that one individual consumed, two different CGMs took completely different readings of their of their postprandial glucose profile. At multiple levels, I think the idea that healthy people would use these as some sort of informative tool for their health, I think, is really is really flawed assumption. For the most part, what people post when they post their glucose response, unless there's someone managing diabetes, people are posting normal physiological responses to glucose, to, to carbohydrate consumption. Your glucose levels will rise and then they will fall again as a part of normal physiological responses to food. And so what's happening now in the commercialization of CGMs and the kind of habitual use by otherwise healthy people for their own health tracking purposes is they're pathologizing normal physiology. There, there's a good quote from a recent paper, which basically I'm, I'm summarizing it. It basically said that the, the problem with this is that people will make bad dietary choices for illusory glycemic benefits. And to me, that kind of sums up where we're at. CGM technology is still evolving. There's enough discrepancies in the data that exists that would warrant caution in assuming that you're just getting pitch perfect reflections of your glucose tolerance. And so outside of their use in clinical diabetes management, the idea that otherwise healthy people are using these devices to me is a bit mad. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Beautifully stated. And so as a continuation of that, you know, when you see some individuals on social media stating that certain food combinations or for example, eating some spinach before you eat a cupcake might actually reduce the impact of the sugar going into your circulation. What are your thoughts on that? This dedication to eat this before something yeah. that is very sugary and it's not going to yeah. harm you as much. Is that true? It's been something that has been doing the rounds for, for kind of years is this idea of food sequencing. There is some interesting evidence in individuals with diabetes that there are some kind of what they call preloads, like these certain dose of whey protein and sometimes combined with fiber consumed before a meal can attenuate their blood glucose response. That's playing on a phenomenon known as the second meal phenomenon or the second meal effect. Basically what that posits is the kind of blood glucose response to a subsequent meal is somewhat lower in its peak than, than the previous preceding meal. There do seem to be some specific kind of nutrients or food combinations that, that might influence that slightly more. But again, otherwise, it's a normal physiological phenomenon. Most of the research is in type 2 diabetes. And, and even at that like there are external validity issues, right? Because people aren't just going to be, oh, hold on, I'm going for lunch. I'll, I'll, I'll just take my 15 grams of whey protein. They have tried to develop these kind of shots, again, for specific clinical use in type 2 diabetes. Again, the, the idea that this is something that an otherwise healthy individual is getting a benefit from, like they're still having a normal blood glucose response if they eat irrespective of the sequence of the meals. It's just the curve of that postprandial response is going to look slightly different. And so on social media, that looks really kind of sciencey, and people are able to say, oh, wow, look at this big difference. And it's like, no, no, if we were to take both of these and calculate the area under the curve, they're probably pretty identical. So yeah, again, it's just, it's, it's, it's playing on this kind of sciencey looking data to, to make a pretty spurious argument that people do not need to do or think about in terms of micromanaging their meals at that kind of level. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah those absolutely. charts look pretty convincing on social media. You're right. Uh, they look pretty, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering if I could ask you about sugar alternatives. Mm -hmm. There's this movement where people are finding alternatives for you know making food taste good. So you have all these artificial sweeteners or sugar alternatives. I wanted to kind of hear from you as an expert of what your thoughts are and also how that essentially shaped this whole guideline that was mm -hmm. produced by the World Health organization ringing the alarm for people to be careful about their consumption of sugar alternatives, which is really confusing. Up until very, very recently, there was a kind of established consensus that non-nutritive sweeteners were were safe for consumption. That's been challenged by a very limited number of cohort studies. And one of them was looking at cardiovascular disease, and another was looking at at type 2 diabetes risk. And then there was another that looked at cancer. Now, all of those studies that I just mentioned came from the same cohort in France, the Nutrinet Sante cohort. They are very limited and prone to bias because the actual amount of people that were consuming artificial sweeteners in the cohort was very small. There was an even smaller number of actual events. And we were talking about min minimal amounts, like very, very minor amounts. When you have a cohort study that has a really small quantification of the exposure of interest, really narrow quantification of it in a limited group of people that are considered consumers with a very small number of outcome events that is just prone with, with bias. And so until those cohorts are replicated with much greater statistical power, I would not be inclined to take them as overturning the body of evidence that we have. And people have been inclined to take them that way because they've got an agenda. Then there was the erythritol study, which I believe is, is the one you were referring to, was published last year. The problem with that is that erythritol is also produced endogenously in the body as a, as a kind of metabolic byproduct of, of metabolic dysfunction. Now, that particular study did not differentiate. It just measured plasma erythritol and never measured dietary erythritol. Yet the way that the paper phrased its title and its abstract and was published, and it should never have got through, because this is, this is academic dishonesty, framed it as if it was artificial sweetener erythritol. Now, what they had done within this study is they had also done a postprandial study in a subgroup of participants, and they had published it as part of the one paper, the one write-up. Those papers should have been separated. It gave the inference that the epidemiological association was a reflection of the artificial sweetener exogenously consumed. And there was no ability to say that by reference to that data because they did not measure or distinguish between endogenous and exogenous dietary consumption of erythritol. So we could probably infer, because it was a cohort with, with a lot of metabolic ill health and dysfunction, that what they were measuring was a metabolite essentially of that metabolic dysfunction and calling it an artificial sweetener. Again, that study should should really not be paid any heed to as far as an inference of the, the sweetener erythritol and its use, which appears again on, on weight of evidence. And, and these non-nutritive sweeteners are repeatedly tested both by the FDA in America and EFSA, the European Food Standards Agency in the, in the European Union, as part of ongoing safety and toxicology monitoring programs. And, and so again, un, until that, that data is overturned with some persuasive evidence, I would not take this handful of studies as indicative of there being any concern over habitual levels of, of consumption. And ultimately, these non-nutritive sweeteners are a good way that people can displace 
calories from sugar in, in their diet. The convenience, the low cost, the way it makes us feel pleasure when we're stressed, it's no wonder sugar's everywhere. It's one of the main causes of global rise in obesity and eating disorders. The fight against these issues is costly, with healthcare expenses expected to hit a staggering $1.2 trillion annually by 2025. There's a silver lining though. Modern technology, including the apps on our phones and a range of widely available medical gadgets allows us to track our refined sugar intake and emotional state on a daily basis in ways we could have never imagined just a few decades ago. And these innovations are only getting smarter. They're getting smaller and more available and cheaper as well. Functional brain imaging is another relatively recent technology which has enabled us to see that people have stronger neurological reactions to sugary foods, making it harder for those who are overweight to resist them. New studies continue to discern the brain's response to sugar and how it influences our behavior. Such research and technology can help us understand the neural changes that long-term sugar consumption causes, potentially leading to new modalities that reduce the effects and addictive qualities of sugar. All of these technologies are at their most powerful when we have a firm understanding of the data they're showing us. So let's go ahead and recap with some key takeaways, shall we? Okay, first of all, embrace complex carbohydrates. Incorporate more fruits, vegetables, and whole grains like oatmeal and non-refined cereals into your diet. These foods provide essential nutrients, fiber, and energy that keep you full and satisfied longer and help stabilize your blood sugar levels and prevent cognitive impairment. Reduce how much simple and refined sugars you consume. Minimize your intake of added sugars, sweetened beverages, and baked goods. These types of foods can lead to metabolic issues that may negatively affect your brain and overall health. Okay. This one's really important. Allow room for dessert. Now it's important to maintain a smart approach to eating. And by smart, I mean specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound. Completely cutting out all treats on your journey towards optimal eating patterns can lead to feelings of deprivation, and this could increase the risk of eating disorders. Allowing yourself to enjoy a piece of cake or a candy a couple of times a month can actually be part of a healthy dietary pattern. Depending on your health status and specific needs, sticking to a healthy dietary pattern 95% of the time and reserving maybe 5% for indulgence is perfectly acceptable. This means you need to calculate how much sugar you can allow yourself to consume. And when you're consuming it, enjoy it fully. Absolutely. But it's also important that we don't succumb to words like moderation. You know how much I hate that word. Focus on progress, not perfection. Remember, your journey is yours alone. It's okay to enjoy the sweet things in life occasionally, but it should be done in a measurable way so that you're aware of how much you're eating and when you need to reel it back in. And this is also very important. Consider non-nutritive sweeteners. To the best of our knowledge today, non-nutritive or artificial sweeteners such as erythritol, stevia, and monk fruit can be part of a healthy dietary pattern, especially for those looking to reduce their calorie intake. As we discussed during the interview, recent studies that have vilified these sweeteners have been debunked. These sweeteners provide the sweetness many of us enjoy, but without the added calories and the potential harm of refined sugars. However, it's very important to stay informed about the new research as our understanding of their long-term effects continue to evolve. 
The history of sugar is a world-spanning journey through some of humanity's darkest moments, but its future, one can hope, will be clear and bright. Advancing healthcare technologies and growing pools of knowledge are ushering in a new era of understanding that's driven by to-the-second data and an expanding society-wide desire to make healthier, better informed decisions for our brains and our bodies. Sugar was once hailed as a hero. Then it was vilified as the enemy. Now let's remember that it can be both. A villain when its power and presence is left unchecked but a hero when working in balance with other food groups. To celebrate the launch of our new podcast, Your Brain On, we're giving away prizes to its earliest listeners like you. Prizes include memberships to our thriving NeuroAcademy community and bundles like our Better Brain Cooking Box, Books Bundle, and Better Brain Favorites Box. To enter, all you need to do is subscribe to Your Brain On, leave an honest review of the show on Apple Podcasts, and then sign up for the contest at the website, thebraindocs.com forward slash podcast. Find more information in the show notes. Thank you so much for supporting and thank you for listening.